Uh, friends, welcome. We are starting a new series today for the next five weeks called Living Our Mission. Uh, it's our vision series. Often at the start of the year, we sort of take a series and, and go through... Uh, you know, some kind of topics that go back to the heart of who we are as a church. And so this time we're doing Living Our Mission, and we're going to go through our, our mission statement of a church, which doesn't sound all that exciting, but don't worry, it will be. Uh, and we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. So if you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Simple text, glorious text. In fact, the first text that we read as a church plant, very first sermon. Let me read. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthians by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Would you join with me in prayer? Father God, I pray and ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A famous book for us as a family of churches is Living the Cross-Centered Life by the founder of Southern Grace Churches, C.J. Mahaney. In the beginning of that book, the very first words of chapter 1 say this. A crucial question to ask. Each of our lives is centered on something. What's at the center of yours? It's a very big existential philosophical question for you on a Sunday morning, but it's an inescapable reality that each one of our lives is actually centered on one thing that governs everything else. What is that center for you? C.J. Mahaney continues. He says, think about it for a moment. What's really the main thing in your life? Only one thing can truly be first in priority. So what's at the top of your list, second to none? help us think about it, he continues, or let me put it this way, what are you most passionate about? What do you love to talk about? A bit more personally, what do you think about when your mind is free? Well, try this, maybe this will help you figure it out. What is it that defines you? Is it your career, a relationship? Maybe it is your family or your ministry. Or maybe your life's passion is not so much a single focus as a constantly shifting gaze. It could be any number of things, good things, but when it comes to centering our life, what really qualifies as the one thing God says should be most important? There are many good things that we can do in our lives and be passionate about our lives and live for in our lives, but there must and can only be one essential priority for our individual lives and our corporate life as a local church. And the one thing that ought to stand at the center of every single one of our lives is the glorious gospel 
of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We read in our reading what Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except one thing, Christ and him crucified. Later on in the letter, toward the end in chapter 15, he said to people who knew the gospel, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is it? That Christ died for our sins. There is one thing of first importance. There is one essential thing to all of our lives. There is one priority that ought to transcend all else. There's one central focus from which everything else is affected. The good news that Christ died for our sins. The late author Jerry Bridges says it like this, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. You could lose physics, you could lose philosophy, you could lose any realm of study or knowledge, but the one essential thing that human beings need is the message of the gospel and all that it entails. That is why Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And friends, there is clarifying power in stripping away all that is good but secondary and getting to the most essential. And for Paul, and for you and I, and for us as a local church, that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Stephen Covey, the business guru who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has famously said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it sounds annoying, but it's true because the busyness and the distraction and the excitement and the attention and the attractiveness of all that goes on and the sadness and the grief and the sorrow of all that goes on in our lives is always vying to replace the main thing and get our attention. And what is so dangerous is that what is most important, vital, and essential gets pushed out from the center and into the peripheries. Perhaps for you, the gospel is at best sometimes assumed, at worst, forgotten. And so as we begin this year, I want to bring us back to the main thing. Our church's mission statement is based on the main thing. I was stirred over summer by reading a book uh, that C.J. Mahaney actually recommended called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. I recommend it. It's a good book. It's a helpful book. It's basically the opposite of how I live my life. <laughs> I'm like, everything is exciting. Let's go everywhere and do it all yesterday. Uh, and this book is saying, no, less is better. What is the most essential thing in your life? Where can you make the greatest contribution? And then you have to say no to basically everything else so that you can keep that at the center. That's what Paul was teaching the Corinthians. 
That's what I want us to be about as a local church. There are lots of good things. There are many great things we do as a church, but there's only one essential and central thing that we must never let go. We must never forget. We must never assume or move on from, and that is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why the mission statement of our church is taken from this gospel centrality. Our mission statement is this. We seek to build a community of believers who are passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in Paramount. This isn't just something that we you talk about once a year. Uh, this is something I'm thinking about all the time. I think this is a faithful description of what a healthy church ought to be like, what a healthy Christian life ought to be like, to build a community of believers, a church family who are serving and loving one another with one central passion, one central focus, one essential focus, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you had to summarize my hope for this year, it would be this, to keep the main thing the main thing. To do less, but do it better. And so we're going to look at our mission statement over the next five weeks, over these five headings, just to give you a bit of an overview. We're going to look at knowing the gospel deeply, applying the gospel broadly, proclaiming the gospel boldly, building the church selflessly, and living in community as family. That's a good, like, Five summary points of what we're trying to get done as a church. And today we're going to focus on the first one. Knowing the gospel deeply. David Pryor in his commentary to the Corinthians, not to the Corinthians, on on 1 Corinthians says this. You never move on from the cross of Christ. Only into a more profound understanding of the cross. I love that. We never move on, only deeper. And that's why today's message is entitled, Knowing the Gospel Deeply. My hope for today is that the center of our lives and our church will be us having a passion to know the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ even more deeply. There are three points to help us achieve that today. Firstly, knowing the gospel deeply means knowing the gospel. Secondly, knowing the gospel deeply means knowing Jesus. And thirdly, knowing the gospel deeply means knowing it passionately. Let's look at point number one to begin. Knowing the gospel deeply means knowing the gospel. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Disciplines of Grace, tells the story of a Christian convention in the 90s in the U.S. with thousands of attendees. Thousands of Christians running around a big conference hall and, you know, with all these stalls and all this going on and singing and dancing, all the pub, everything going on. And this one group went around with a video and a tape recorder in those days, the 90s, and recorded people and asked them one simple question. What is the gospel? And they interviewed multitudes of people. And in reviewing all the footage, the sad reality is, Only one 
person gave an adequate answer. Only one person amongst thousands of Christians in America could succinctly and clearly say, Christ died for our sins. What is the gospel? You don't have to answer, but think. What, how would you answer that? What is the gospel? You got, you're on the spot. The, the tape recorder, you know, they are, uh, they're running. I'm thinking like um, Kevin McAllister in Home Alone with his talk boy. He's got the talk boy, if you know the reference. What is the gospel? What would your voice say? Now, I hope, I hope in this room we would give a good answer. Uh, for some of us, it, it, it may be short. Hopefully we know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's a good short answer of the gospel. That's, that's good news. But we want to go deeper. We want to know more. Okay, uh, for God so loved the world, what did that love look like? Uh, how did giving his Son save us? How does believing in him give us eternal life? What actually goes on on the cross? We want to be able to answer those questions. We need to be able to answer them to share it and for our daily life. And so I want to turn us to Romans chapter 3, verse 19 to 25. And I want us to not assume that we know the gospel. One of my job descriptions as a pastor is to not assume anyone actually knows the gospel properly. And we're going to dig in into Romans chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible for this point, we're going to look at Romans 3, 19 to 25. John Piper has famously said that if you held a gun to his head and made him choose, this would be for him the most important paragraph in the Bible. Martin Luther said this is the center of the epistle of Romans and likely the most important passage in the Bible. So let us turn now. And look at the most important passage in the Bible as defined by Luther and Piper. And I'm just going to get behind those guys and go, okay, I reckon they're probably right. And why? Because in this passage, Paul walks us through the gospel. So let's have a look. I'm going to look at this passage in in four movements just so that we can maybe go back over it, or maybe you could write it in your Bible or write these as notes so you can just know, okay, if I need to explain the gospel, this is what it is. First movement. First kind of point he makes is this. No one is declared righteous by God by observing the law. Look at verse 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that Every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one is declared righteous by God by observing the law. Paul is going to great lengths in the book of Romans to show that everyone has fallen short, everyone's a sinner, the Jews, the Gentiles, no one can meet God's righteous and perfect standard. What the law does, rather than showing how good we are, it actually shows us how bad we are. 
If you study God's law and read all the demands and compare it to God's holy righteousness in and of himself, it's actually quite a depressing moment because you realize when we compare to each other, we might think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. You know, I get 60% on the test. That's pretty good. You know, this person got 40%, so maybe I'll get through. It's a bell curve, right? No. <laughs> the entrance exam is 100%. And even if you got 99% as a human in obeying God's law, you would fail. The nature of the human heart and all human religions, including ones that don't talk about God, is all about us doing enough to prove ourselves worthy of a being or a group of people. And Paul wants to tell you, you can't do it. Pilgrim, in Pilgrim's Progress, reads the Bible and suddenly gets this huge burden on his back because he realizes he is a man under sin and judgment. And this burden weighs him down and he can't stop but seek to be relieved from that burden because he knows that if he dies with that burden on his back, he will face God and be judged for all of his sins and will be cast into hell. And so uh, Christian pleads and runs and does everything he can to relieve himself of that burden. Are you carrying a burden this morning? Are you carrying around the knowledge of your sin and the realization that you aren't good enough? Constantly trying to do it and do it and do it and realizing if you're honest, you're never quite getting there. Well, that leads us to the second movement. There is good news. Secondly, there is a righteousness from God apart from the law. Okay, that's good news. Verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the good news is there is a righteousness. It's possible. It's not found in obedience to the law, though the law and the prophets predicted that this righteousness is possible. And what Paul is saying is there is a righteousness and it's Jesus Christ himself. The righteousness of God is not found in us. It's found in him. That's why Jesus had to live a life. He had to live under the law and obey the law perfectly and live in active and passive obedience to God so that he could be the very righteousness of God for us. That's good news. Okay, so righteousness is available. How do I access it? How do I get in on this righteousness? Because if righteousness, 100%, is what I need to be in the presence of God and we know how good God is, how do I get it? Well, Movement three in this outline of Paul's gospel. You receive this righteousness only through faith in Jesus Christ, no matter who you are. Verse 22 to 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's an equal playing field, Jew or Gentile, Christian background, non-Christian background, horrendous sinful life, not that bad of a life. We have all fallen short, but now there is the possibility of you having the very righteousness of God accredited to your account. How is it? Through faith in Jesus Christ. 
The old evangelism explosion training used to tell people to preach the gospel like this. You get two chairs, and um, the chair represents your faith and what you're putting your stock in and what you're, what you're believing in. And one chair is you and what you've done and your works. And the other chair is Christ and all that he has done. And it instructs you to tell someone that currently, if you're not in Christ, you're sitting on this chair. You are resting in. Your full body weight is resting in your good works to get you before God. And you're going to have to stand on these works and say, this is what I've done. Can I get into heaven? The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is you repent, you get off your chair and you walk down and you sit on this chair completely. All your faith is in Christ's works and you can't do one. You have to do one or the other. You can't have one foot on your own chair, one foot on this chair and do the splits. It doesn't work like that. Salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. Resting, leaning, relying. When John Patton was a missionary, he went out into tropical islands and was trying to preach the gospel and realized they had no word for faith or he didn't know it. So he's trying to translate into their language. And then as he was in that process, someone um, came along and they had a really great problem. And they leant heavily upon him and said, can I please lean heavily upon you? I have this problem. And he's like, what's that word? <laughs> and he wrote, that's the word in that missionary language for faith. That's what it means to have faith in Christ, is to lean heavily upon Jesus and only Jesus. So how much does it cost them? What are you going to do? What are you going to give up? Fourth movement. You receive this righteousness freely, but it was paid it was paid by the deathly cost of Christ. Verse 24 and 25. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified. That is, and are declared legally righteous in God's sight. How? By His grace as a gift. It's free. It's a gift. It's crazy. No other religion is like this. No other system. No other community is like this. You want full entry? Do you want to be a Qantas Platinum Plus member? Well, you've got to fly about 50 times a week to get there. To be a Christian, to inherit heaven, to become a son or daughter of God, to have all your sins forgiven, to have heaven as your home, to have God as your friend and your protector, to receive God himself as the Holy Spirit in you. It's free. But it was paid by the deathly cross of Christ, justified by his grace as a gift through the means by which you receive this gift is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is, you were a slave and you were redeemed out of slavery by the price of Jesus Christ. What was that price? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The cost of our salvation is that God, the only way he can overlook your sin is if he replaces you with Christ on the cross. 
He had to hang upon the tree and be cursed so that we could receive his righteousness. That word propitiation there is not a word we use often. It means to appease wrath. God has wrath, holy, righteous, hatred of sin against any evildoers. The Psalms say God hates evildoers. God hates evildoers. It's not a popular phrase, even in Christian circles. God hates sin. The only way he can put aside his hatred of sin for you is if he pays it somewhere. And so God, in his mercy and grace, decides in eternity past to send Jesus Christ so that he can pour all of his wrath upon Jesus Christ so that there's no wrath remaining for anyone who is in Jesus because it's all been expended. The energy level is on zero. If it was a game, it's gone. There's no wrath remaining. This is the the good news of the gospel. Free righteousness, costly sacrifice. That's why we sing. We don't sing it here. We probably should. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The only way... Sinners like you and I can stand before a holy God who we have to give an account for our lives is if we stand clothed in the righteousness of another. The gospel was a two-sided coin. On one side, it says, not guilty. And on the other side, it says, righteous. Friends, if you have put your faith in Christ, God declares you not guilty, but not just that, He declares you righteous because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is transferred onto you and you wear the splendor of Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, God looks upon you with joy and pleasure and delight because he sees his son. Oh, such good news. And we know it, but we've got to rehearse it and believe it and get it deep into our souls. So friends, what is the gospel? (laughs) The gospel is that we are justified by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what the reformers fought and died for. And that's what we're about as a church and we'll never move on. You can't save yourself. There is a way to be saved. It's through Jesus. Put your faith in him and you will be saved. That's the gospel. That's in short, too. We can keep going. (laughs) It's like the beach. You start walking out, and then you keep walking, and then you keep walking, and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So if you were asked on the tape, what is the gospel? Well, hopefully now you've got a bit more to say. (laughs) And if you don't know it very well, then you've got to read more about it. You've got to get some books, and you've got to study it, because it's the best. It's the glorious. And if you feel like, I'm not, I'm not sure where I, am I in? Am I saved yet or not? Have I, made, have I moved from that chair to this chair? Well, now that you know what the gospel is, today, can I commend you, if you are not sure that you are in Christ, be sure. Repent of your sin 
and put your faith fully in Jesus and say, I trust in you for my salvation, not in myself, and you will be saved right now. Nothing could be more urgent for you. I commend to you, flee to Christ today. So firstly, friends, for us to be a church that knows the gospel deeply, well, we must know the gospel. Can't assume it, can't move on from it, we've got to keep studying it. Secondly, and I want to make this point short, but I thought it was, I wanted to clarify this. Secondly, knowing the gospel deeply means knowing Jesus. Knowing the gospel is not like knowing chess. You know all the pieces, know the best moves, know how to play the game, know how it works. Christianity is not chess. Okay, Christianity is a personal relationship with God. So knowing the gospel actually isn't just like studying a subject. Like I know physics. No, no. It's knowing a person, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, who knew the gospel better than any of us, when he's talking about the gospel, it's like he's talking about knowing a friend. Look at Philippians chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, flick, flick across to chapter 3, knowing the gospel is shorthand for like being married. you knowing it's, it's the deepest, most intimate relationship when it goes well. Paul says this, talking about his past life of trying to live by the law. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, look at verse 8, I count Everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, my Lord. See that? For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And now look, he's going to explain the gospel. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I don't know if anyone in the history of science has died for physics. Okay, you die for people. You die for Jesus that's why Paul's willing to die because it's not just he just knows this piece of knowledge, he knows Jesus. And so knowing the gospel is shorthand for knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, living for Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus, growing in your daily communion with Jesus himself. He is our leader. He is our shepherd. We are his disciples. He is our Lord. It's a daily decision to count things as lost compared to knowing Christ. We have to make that daily decision. Friends, do you know Jesus personally? Do you know him? Not just about him, though it's good to know about him. Not just as a concept, not just as a thing we do. We, we do gospel. Do you know Jesus yourself? Or did you once know him? But you've forgotten him and you're not really mates anymore. Well, maybe you, you, you know about him, but it's never really become real. 
I remember when, what that was like for me as a, as a young man, 15, 16 years old. I went to church. I went to youth group. I heard the stories. I knew what to believe. I told other people about the gospel. But I, I didn't know Jesus personally because I was totally fine with my sin. It wasn't until God, through his convicting power of the Holy Spirit, made me see what a sinner I was and, and how gross that was, that it was this barrier between me and God. And then as I started to hate my sin, I, I started to realize oh, I deserved hell and I deserved judgment. And then I started to realize, oh, that's what Jesus did. He saved me from that. He saved me from what I deserve. And then the, the, the truths of the gospel that I knew as fact became beautiful. And Jesus became my friend and I started to love him and I started to worship him and I started to live my life for him and I was caught up in the glory of who he is. A journey that has not backed down in the last 16 years. Praise God. Do you know Jesus personally? Like Paul. Is he your mate? Is he your friend? Is he your closest? Do you remember what it was like Perhaps when your passion was more, when your love was greater. Let that memory lead you to more, to want to seek Jesus more. So knowing the gospel deeply means knowing the gospel. We actually got to know it. But knowing the gospel deeply means knowing Jesus. And thirdly, knowing the gospel deeply means knowing it passionately. Knowing it passionately. I want us to be a church which doesn't just be like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe the gospel. It's good, it's true. (laughs) I want us to be a church which is passionate about the gospel. You are a church passionate about the gospel. It's evident in the way that you sing and you clap and you dance because you have something to clap, sing and dance about. Jesus Christ died for your sins. I want us to be a church, every single one of us, Not just some more charismatic people or some people that are louder. Every one of us in our own way, in the way God has designed us to be passionate about the gospel. And this isn't just my preference. This is a scriptural command. Turn to Romans chapter 12. This isn't just a Riley thing. Some passion about lots of things, okay? Coffee, football, you know, um, my wife, uh, lots of things. Look at Romans 12, 11. Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, or most likely be fervent in the Holy Spirit. That is, boil or seethe in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, we are to be zealous for Jesus. We are to boil and seethe with a spirit-born fervency in our pursuit and service of one thing. It doesn't say, you know, be zealous about the church, though it's good to be zealous about the church. Be zealous about your ministry, be zealous about your family. No. Be zealous for serving the Lord, Him, first and foremost. The late bishop, Anglican bishop, 
J.C. Ryle in the 19th century said this, A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he is earnest, hardy, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. It's not enough. He sees only one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He's swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases men or whether he gives offense, whether he's thought wise or whether he's thought foolish, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all of this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. Wouldn't that be glorious? He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and advance God's glory. Men and women who are zealous for one thing. This is the testimony of all scriptures. Psalm 27, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Jesus speaking to Martha, who was so convinced she needed to serve and serve and do and do and do. And Mary's there sitting at Jesus' feet, just spending time with Jesus. And Martha's like, come on, Lord, we got work to do. Tell Mary to get up, stop spending time with you and get in the kitchen with me. And Jesus says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Paul, after he said, I've given up all things for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, said in Philippians 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. One thing that consumes the heart of a saint is knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, living for Jesus, serving the Lord. But friends, this does not happen naturally. If you're thinking, oh, I've got to, I'm not naturally like this, or this doesn't come to me easily, well, guess what? You're part of the club of every single Christian, okay? You're not unique. There's no, like, unique person in this room that's just like, I'm the one person that finds it hard to be passionate about Jesus. No, that's, that's me. That's everyone. That's Paul. That's why he said straining, pressing, counting all things as loss. It's hard. Don Carson, in his commentary for the love of God, says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Do you notice any of the slouching or sliding in your heart? I do. Unless we're 
pursuing zeal in the Lord, we are drifting away. The current of the world, the flesh and the devil is pulling us away. So unless you're swimming against the tide, you're going out. Therefore, that's why Paul, in his pastoral wisdom, said to the Roman Christians, do not be slothful in zeal. Don't think, oh, if I just don't do much about it, I'll be fine. No, no. Don't be lazy in zeal. Tend to the fire of your soul. Jeff Percival, in his great sermon from the pastor conference on zeal, which I highly recommend, said this, tend to zeal like a campfire in a cold, barren wilderness. You just can't afford for it to die down. You tend it. You stoke it. You feed it. Your life depends on it. That's what it's like to not be slothful in zeal. You're tending to this fire. Friends, he goes on to say, it requires constant attention, which is critical for us to be aware of because zeal doesn't suddenly vanish. The flame of zeal is rarely extinguished by a single gust of wind. No, zeal erodes. The erosion happens slowly and gradually and usually imperceptibly. Has your zeal for the Lord of hosts eroded? Maybe you can ask people around you, am I zealous for Jesus like I used to be? Zeal for the Lord is not something that youth and young adults do and then we mature into a steady faith. Okay, The word passion is not the most helpful word um, in our mission statement because passion is sort of connotative with like, whoa, I feel passion, now I don't feel passion. Zeal is not like that. Zeal is a, a steadfast passion, a cultivated passion, a, a resolute passion. If you were zealous or passionate for Jesus when you were young, it might have just been because you were young and you got passionate about lots of things. And now the cares of this world have come in. The good news is, is that zeal can come back. Some signs that your zeal may have eroded. You're not really singing. You know that your zeal is being slothful if you're not really singing. If you, if you don't have a song, you probably don't have zeal. If you're serving out of duty but no delight. If you're giving with reluctance. If you're loving with just Ugh. Because when zeal takes over, those things have, have, a different, have a different flavor. They still hurt. They still hurt. They still cost. But when Jesus is at the center, you realize, oh, I'm singing to Jesus. I'm serving Jesus. I'm giving to Jesus. I'm loving Jesus. And it might be Jesus in this room or it, it might look different. But when zeal is there, those things change in character. The church in Ephesus, they, they worked hard. They didn't give up on their faith when, Jesus, when, Paul, when John wrote to them through the Spirit, through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you've been patient, you've worked hard, you've toiled, you don't bear with those who are evil. You're bearing up. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He commends the church. Well done. You did well. 
but I've got something against you. You don't love me like you used to. Do you love Jesus like you used to? What does is, what is Jesus say in response in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5? He doesn't say, oh, that's okay, it's really hard. I know. No, look at these strong words. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's talking to the church. He's saying, as a church, if you don't love me like you used to, you'll cease to be a church anymore. And the way out, repent. Individually and corporately. If we ever get to a place where we're just doing the, doing the thing, doing the serving, doing the church, as a church, what we ought to do is repent. If you're just in that state and you've got no zeal for the Lord, Jesus is clear to you. Repent. The good news is it's a sin, okay? That's the good news. And the, the reason why that's good news is you can repent of sins, you can be forgiven, and you can be changed. If your lack of zeal is just personality, you're condemned forever, okay? If it's just your genealogy and your DNA, you're condemned. But if it's a sin, you can repent and change. That's good news. Unexpected good news, but it's good news. Repent if you have no zeal for the Lord at the moment. Now, this verse teaches us that zeal is not an accomplishment. Zeal is not something that we make happen. The text says, be fervent in spirit. That is, be fervent in the Holy Spirit. That is, it's a miracle. Zeal for the Lord is not something that you can conjure up. You need to receive it from God. And that's why we need to plead, oh Lord, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit that I might have zeal for you. Okay, it's, it's possible. It's not automatic. And it will take hard work. That's why Paul said, do not be slothful in zeal. Okay, so if it, all it took was just one prayer and you could be zealous, then we don't need the first half of the verse, right? But instead, we have to work at our zeal. We have to put ourselves before the cross. And like John Stott said, let the sparks of the cross fall upon us again and reawaken our love of God. And if there's one application that will help us to know the gospel deeply, know Jesus personally, and know the gospel passionately, there's one thing to help you keep the one thing, the one thing, the main thing, to keep the main thing, the main thing. I think Jerry Bridges summarized it very well when he said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. If you want to know how to be a zealous Christian, Preach the gospel to yourself. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. It sounds cliche, but it's true. I've got an old communist-era Russian wind-up watch, a Vostok watch that uh, I think my wife got me for a birthday about 10 years ago. And the fun thing about this watch is it doesn't have a battery. And the only way to make it work is you've got to wind it up every day. If you don't wind it up, you come back. Stops working. Jerry Bridges says the gospel is like the mainspring of an analog watch. You've got to wind it every day. Because every day we wake up an unbeliever. Every day we wake up with this condemnation, this sense of guilt, this reality that we are guilty, that we have sinned. 
And so every day we've got to wind the gospel again. And we've got to admit, okay, Lord, this is how we preach the gospel to ourselves. We come before God in whatever time. might be in the morning, might be during the day, might be when you become conscious of a sin. And you say, Lord, I am a sinner. Like this Pharisee, uh, the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Not just I was a sinner, I am a sinner. I'm a practicing sinner. It's not just something I used to do, it's something I do. And then you, you ask for forgiveness of sins. Even though your sins have been forgiven, you reappropriate the gospel to yourself again. And you say, Lord, please forgive me for my sins that deserve hell and death. Forgive me for all my sins. And then, this is when the preaching starts happening. You start taking the verses of Scripture and you start applying them to your heart and preaching the gospel again. You take verses like Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where God says through Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall become like wool. And you start preaching to your soul. You say, Oh Lord, I thank you that though my sins are bright red like scarlet, can't hide them. You make them as white as snow. I am forgiven. I have your Holy Spirit. I am going to heaven. I'm clothed in the righteousness of your son. And then as you do that, you will find your heart will start to warm up. And you'll start to sense, oh, this is good. Praise God. I was going to hell. Now I'm going to heaven. I was once an enemy. Now I'm a friend. I was once an orphan. Now I'm an adopted son or daughter. And then the joy starts to flow. And then the desire to serve and the love and to give and to sing, that's where it comes from. So friends, preach the gospel to yourself every day, if not multiple times a day. And as C.J. Mahaney always says, no days off. What's your one thing, church? What's at the center of your life that then affects everything else you do. Let it be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Be passionate about it. Be zealous about Him. And let that knowledge change everything about you, as we'll see in weeks to come. Let's pray. Lord God, may we know nothing in the center of our hearts except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May we as a church be passionate about your Son Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. May it be the story of our lives as individuals, as families, as households, as workers, as my friends go out into the workplace, into their schools, into their communities. May they have the gospel at the center and may it affect how they live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.